morning, we're going to read together, as we have been the past weeks, the New Living Translations version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. So if you want to uh, read that with me, I sorry, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just start. Um, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. All right. Amen. So let's, let's go ahead. Fears. Does anybody want to volunteer their fear that they, that they talked about? Or does anyone want to volunteer someone else's fear for them? As long as it's not like deeply personal. Okay. Spiders. Okay, that's probably a fairly common one. That's one my wife has had to overcome. So spiders, yeah. What was it? Anybody else? Swimming in a in a body of water that is not a swimming pool. Okay. Swimming in anything that's not a pool. Okay, anybody else want to volunteer? Ooh, being chased. That's, that's a legitimate fear, I think. One that people could or could not take advantage of, I suppose. But that's, yeah. yeah. Please don't. You know, and she was vulnerable with us all. Bear in mind, she, you know, like a... Yeah. <laughs> Not being good enough. Do you know what? That's, that's one that I would, have, I would have put down as well, like for me. Um, the fear of failure would have been, yeah, not being. Yeah, okay. Failed expectations. didn't write this down. I won't write this down, but for me, an irrational fear is carnival people. And if you want to know more about why I have that fear, which I actually believe is a rational fear, um, we can talk later about that. But um, anything else anybody wants to add? Or, or we... Snakes. Snakes. Oh, fair enough. Especially, I feel like, okay, I've watched enough of like David Attenborough to know like India seems like a terrifying place for snakes. Like maybe Australia could like give them a run for money. But other than that, like that's like, that's a legitimate fear. In Ireland, you know, not so much, but like, I suppose somebody has their pet boa constrictor they let go or something. Like, that could, that could happen. Okay. We'll go ahead. We'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll leave it. This is, a, this is a reasonable list, I think. We'll put a cloud around it and uh, we'll just leave it up here. Okay. So, so fears. What I didn't hear from anyone that they were afraid of, and I have a feeling, I didn't, I had, a, I was really hoping this wouldn't come up because it would completely ruin the illustration. Was I doubt any of us have a fear of starvation. Like, if we did, it wouldn't necessarily be a real legitimate one, right? Like, the fear of, like, starving to death. Now, there are people in this world that do, that have that legitimate fear, but I think for most of us sitting in here, that, that wouldn't be 
on our list of fears, whether rational or irrational. It's not something we go about thinking about on a daily basis, like, will I have enough food to eat today, right? Um, so, so this is important to understand that when we come to this prayer, give us today the food we need. I think it's important that we recognize the fact that that's not necessarily something that like, we're terribly afraid of. And so we really need to like, think about and process what Jesus is getting at to help us understand what he fully means in this text and why we should care, why should we should be concerned, why we should pray about giving us the food that we need. So I think one of the things that's important is looking at the historical context. And for those of you who maybe history isn't your favorite thing, bear with me for a moment because it's important for us to understand who Jesus is speaking to. So there's this guy, he's like a total Bible nerd by the name of Linsky. His last name's Linsky. Not that that really matters, but I just feel like I need to give credit for who came up with this chart. Okay, and what he did was a study and he said, what was, first, what was the first century Roman world like? Okay, and so he came out with this, with this chart after doing all of his study, and uh, there was another guy, Goldingay, I, I believe it's uh, John Goldingay, who also did one, and came out in a similar place, like they, they came, to, came to basically the similar, uh, similar thing. So 2 to 5% of the world, of the Roman world in the first century, we would consider like the elite. Okay, they're the people that hold a lot of land, they're, they're the people who are the aristocracy, they're the, people, they're the people with money. We know who these people are in our world, they're, they're the elites, right? Then you've got 10 to 15% of the, of the Roman world that would have been middle class, what we would consider middle class, okay? Then you've got 65 to 78% of the world, which Lenski says would have been considered the poor, all right, and then you've got this last category, and this is Linsky's word for it, not mine. And it sounds harsh. Hopefully I'm spelling this right because I'm talking at the same time. Expendables. 10 to 15% of the Roman population would have been considered expendable. As in, most people in these categories went through their lives going, not caring whether these people lived or died. Right? They're the people that are out begging for everything. They're the people who are on the side of the road. They're the people who literally have nothing, who have no idea whether they will make it to the next day. And for the most part, the people living, and, and you know what? Sadly, this could be a whole other sermon, but to another extent, we probably have these people in our population as well. Um, that, that you know what? We don't really give much thought to. All right? So 10 to 15% of the Roman world was that. Now, what we also need to consider is that Palestine, so where Jesus is, where Jesus is speaking, is one of the poorest regions in the Roman Empire. And so what we have to realize is the people that Jesus is speaking to are this category right here. Jesus is directing the Sermon on the Mount at these people, the poor and the expendables. These were the people that came to hear Jesus, that listened to him that heard the revolutionary words that he spoke. Now, I want to define just quickly poor and middle class, what we mean by that. So middle class for Linsky means that you could survive one bad season, whether that means you're a merchant and your stuff gets lost at sea. Like, you could survive that one time, okay? Or you're a farmer and there's a drought, you could survive one bad season. That's all middle class meant. That's not necessarily what we would consider middle, middle class, right? There's, there's no social system to help people out. There's nothing like that. So, so they're one bad season away 
Like they could survive one season, but they're two bad seasons away from moving into this category. All right? And what the poor, what that meant is if anything went wrong at all in their lives, anything, they move into this category. All right? So these are the people that Jesus is mostly speaking to. And here's where I think the struggle is. And I'm going to make a blanket statement. For the most part in Ireland, everyone sits in these two categories. And the reason being, and you may balk at that for a moment, but we have a, a social system in place. I won't say it's a good one necessarily, but we have a social system in place to where, and you know what, things like this, like I've never thought like, man, where will I get a loaf of bread? I can go to Aldi and it's 89 cents, right? So like starving to death, for most people in Ireland, that's not a reality, Okay. So it's going to be hard in some ways for us to understand Jesus' words because he's speaking to these people, yet we all sit somewhere in here. All right? And so Jesus is speaking to these people where the average economic status of people is that they are poor or expendable. And so they had already a sense of feeling a dependence on God, which is something that even in our culture we don't necessarily feel, right? We don't necessarily always, we can go about our day pretty okay, right? I can go, I know where I can get a loaf of bread cheap. I know I can find the old meats down in Super Value so I can get a pretty good deal on some mints. Like, right, I know, like, I know how to get by. My food just shows up on a truck. Like, I didn't have to farm it. I didn't have, you know, like, I didn't have, like, do you understand? So, so it, like, for people in Jesus' day, they felt more a dependence on God. And so I, I think the last, the last sort of, I suppose, teaching point here, if we're just, you know, if I'm like, you know, pretending to be a professor here, the last, last point of teaching is that we need to understand the context. So we've, we've looked at the historical context, but it's also important that we look at the literary, literary context. So Matthew, Matthew isn't just writing history for this history's sake. He's writing what, what all the like nerds in big glasses would call a theological history, right? So he has a point. He puts things in a place for a reason, Okay, ancient histories weren't necessarily written always linear and in chronological order. And if you read Matthew and then you read Luke, you'll start to see that. Okay, and it doesn't make it untrue. And it doesn't mean that they didn't think they were doing history because they absolutely did. But they're not as concerned with like making sure everything is in exact like chronological order, like A precedes B precedes C, right? They're okay with going like A, F, C, G, like that's fine. They're all true events. So Matthew, when he places this sermon in order... Okay, this may not have been exactly how Jesus preached it, because when we go to Luke, we see that Jesus preached it a bit differently. And maybe Jesus preached this kind of thing all the time. And maybe, you know, Luke records one way that Jesus taught it, and Matthew records another. We don't know. But what we know is whatever they did, they did it on purpose. The way that they recorded it, they recorded it on purpose. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 6, what we find is that we have this, this teaching about giving to the needy, about how you go about serving those who are less fortunate than you. How as Christians, we should be all about that. And throughout history, one of the amazing things about Christianity is that has ultimately over the grand scope of things been true. Christians have, you know, on the vast kind of giant swath generalization here, been very good at serving those less fortunate. Okay, 
But, but that's like, so it's in this category. Jesus is teaching about that. Then he comes to this pray, the, the teaching about how to pray, and then he jumps right back into wealth and money and how we handle our money and what we do with it, how like a right view of money. So if you start to see it, like it's almost like this sort of like, like money, prayer, money. <laughs> I'm just going to do shorthand. There's no point in like doing, so you right, do you see like money, prayer, money, like giving, prayer, giving. So what, what, why would he do that? And here's the thing, I think if we're not praying, and Luke's been talking about the importance the last three, the last couple of weeks, the importance of, of understanding our place before God, that God, it is his kingdom, and that we are praying that his kingdom comes, and that his will be done. And it is only as we're praying that, and we recognize then that everything that we have is a gift from God, and this is what we're about to dive into, when we start to recognize every single blessing I have comes from God we're going to have problems. And the problem is, is that what we're, what we're going to do, sorry, let me make sure I've got my, my arrows right here. Yeah, is that if we're not reorienting ourselves in prayer, we're going to be tempted to forget about these people. We're going to be tempted to forget about them and to think they don't matter, which Jesus at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 says, no, 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 these people really matter. And you need to take care of them and you need to take care of them for the right reasons. Or maybe for us, right, for, we'd be tempted to forget about these people, right? And, and what we end up doing then is looking at these people. So as we look at these people and we think, oh, they're the ones who have it. And if I just got this, then my life would be okay. If I just had a bit more money, then I would be stable and I could give this much away and I could give that here. And if I just made, you know, had a bit higher position, a bit more power, then I could enact more, uh, more change and all of this. And we, and we start thinking like, well, if I just get to this point, then everything will be fine, right? And that's what Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter six is all about. He says, stop that. Don't put your hope in those things. Don't put your hope in the things that will rot and fade away. That moth and vermin, I guess the NIV translates it, or moth and rust will steal. They're things that ultimately don't matter. But when we're so busy looking at this and going, if I can just get to here, then we're tempted to forget about these people. And Jesus doesn't want to let us do that. And if we come to him in prayer, reorienting our life, then it becomes possible to not get so caught up in wanting to be the level above us that we can think about the people below us or the people right next to us, the people we see every day. It calls us out of ourselves. It's one of the things prayer does is it calls us out of ourselves, away from ourselves, and reorients us to God and to others. Okay, and so this prayer that, that we would have the food we need recognizes that everything that we have is a gift. And so we've had these three petitions in the beginning that God's kingdom would be fully realized on earth. May your kingdom come, may your will be done, may your name be kept holy. And then it moves to these three petitions for our needs and our relationships. But one last thing I think is in order, and that's to realize that this prayer that Jesus says, he doesn't say, pray this. May my, king, may, uh, 
May you give me the food I need. May you forgive my sins. May you not let me yield to temptation. It's all plural. And this is just a good habit. When, you come, when you're reading the Bible and you come to the word you, most often it's plural. It's like ye, you guys, if you're from the South in America, y'all. Right? It's that plural. Okay, and that's a struggle for us in the English language. Maybe for those of you, you know, who another language is first, you know, maybe you read in your Bible and it's not confusing at all, but oftentimes in the English, we get confused because you can be singular and plural, which is, you know, probably confusing. Um, but then we come to this and it's, it's very clearly plural. Give us today the food we need. And it's a recognition that I'm not the only one who needs food today. I'm not the only one who needs my needs met. I'm not, I'm not the center of the universe. That we're together and we pray this together. And even when I pray it by myself, I am praying it with all of, with all of believers in Jesus. That we pray it together. That we ask for these blessings, not just for myself, but for others. William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas say it this way, and I thought the quote was really, really good. There may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around in the recess of your psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. And so prayer invites us to see life and the meeting of our needs as a blessing that we share in community. And that takes a, it takes a bit of humility, doesn't it? It takes a bit of humility to pray that. And like I said, for us, we, can, we could go to Super Value or to Aldi or to Dunn's and we can pick up what we need. We can go to our work and know where our paycheck is going to come from for many of us. We can, like, we can go about our lives in a very like, just kind of rationalistic sort of, like, sort of way without leaving room or need for God. And yet it's only in those moments then where all of a sudden I don't know where my paycheck is going to come from because I've lost my job that it begins this process sometimes of thinking about and humbling ourselves to recognize our reliance on God. But what God is doing is saying, hey, look, no matter what your circumstances, you need to pray this prayer that says, God, I need you to give me what I need. And so this, this idea of food is a shorthand for everything I need to survive. Okay, this is everything I need to survive, whether, whether it's clothes, food, water, clean water to drink, what, you know, whatever it may be, a roof over my head, all of those things, I am dependent on God for that. And we live in a culture that can balk at that, that can say, no way, I've pulled myself up from my boots, by my bootstraps, I've made my own life, I'm dependent on no one for anything, except God says, well, did you cause the rain? Did you make the sun shine? 
we're often much more dependent than we think we are. We, want, we live in this illusion that the world is a closed system that I can somehow control and get what I want. So the question is, when did we stop seeing the world as a gift? When did we stop seeing the world as a gift and begin to see it as a purely closed system? And that's something for as much as the Enlightenment maybe gave us, that one of the things that they gave us that I'm, we, we shouldn't be necessarily super grateful for is this idea that the world is a closed system, that everything operates you know, mechanically. Nobody saw the world that way before the Enlightenment in the 17th century. Like Nobody saw the world that way. And Jesus certainly didn't. This idea that everything in the world can be explained rationally. Now, the thing is that God normally does provide that way, doesn't he? He causes rain and sun and crops grow and farmers get out with their, like the boys yesterday were at a birthday party playing with this like giant combine, which is pretty cool. Like they get out the, the combine tractor and they, you know, they, they harvest the wheat or the corn and, and they make uh, the bread that we eat, you know, like all of that gets processed. Like, you know what? It is a system. It's definitely a system. But the problem is, is that we often don't make room for God in that system. We just can rationally explain how everything works. And yet, and we fail to see that even all of this is a blessing from God that could be taken away. If you're into science fiction, you know that's a, that's a total possibility, right? Mad Max type stuff, like you know, things could go really terribly wrong here, you know? Like, like, but it is, it's one of those like things could be taken away. It's a blessing to be able to go to Aldi and to buy a loaf of bread. Or to be able to buy coffee that came from, like, you know, Colombia. Like, you don't think about the fact that a boat brought it, you know, like all of this, like the process involved in that. And even, like, just the mind boggling nature of the fact that, like, human beings were created with a brain capable of building, like, a boat so huge that, like, most of the world's bananas can come through cork. Like, wh like what? You know, like, there's a, there's a bit of free trivia for you. Ireland is the largest exporter of bananas in the world. So, so let's sit with that for a moment, because apparently Fife's brings all the bananas into Ireland and then exports them out to the rest of the world, which I once saw on a show on RTE, so I know it's true. Um, <clears throat> so that wasn't meant to be a criticism about RTE, just I trust what I see on the television. Um, <laughs> so, moving on. There's this question then, when was the last time that you truly felt, and I don't mean just like recognized, but like truly felt your dependence on God for physical needs? And this is, like I said, why, why we went through this. I think this is a struggle for us, living in like the first world, to think about that, our physical, our dependence on God for physical needs, yet that's exactly what God is calling us to in this prayer, to humbly recognize that we are dependent on Him. And so as people who, who really live in abundance, we would be in that top category of the first century world. And really, on a global perspective, are in that top category. It can be hard. And so in our prayers, we need to recognize our dependence on God, that His gracious giving is what sustains us that we're dependent members of a bigger system than ourselves. That we, 
we're dependent on the rain and the sun and the tides, and that we are indeed fragile. And I think that's one of the things we so often don't see ourselves as fragile. It's only in these moments of tragedy or difficulty that we begin to see that we are actually fragile human beings. And Jesus is calling us in this prayer to recognize our dependence on Him and the fact that we are actually fragile human beings. But if we read in, in Luke, or Matthew chapter 6 or in Luke chapter 12, we see that Jesus doesn't just leave it in that depressing, like, well, you're fragile human beings. You know, just suck it up and embrace it. He says, but you have a God who loves you. You have a Father in heaven who loves you, who looks after you and takes care of you. And so I think it's important as we come to this kind of, I suppose, the application here of like taking what we've just learned and saying like, how does this matter really? Outside of the abstract of, okay, I need to be grateful, but like, what does it really look like? Saying, do we really believe that we have a Father in heaven who loves not just you and me, but everyone in the world that wants to provide and take care of his people? What does that say for you and I and our responsibilities then as people who've been given much? And I just couldn't help but as I read the parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke. Okay, so Luke chapter 12. If you go to Luke chapter 12, what you find is that you see the, the sermon, uh, Jesus' model prayer is in Luke chapter 11. Okay, so he gives us the, the model prayer there um, at the beginning of Luke chapter 11. And then we skip over to Luke chapter 12, and all of a sudden we're into these same teachings that where Matthew puts them in at the beginning and the end of chapter 6, sandwiched with the prayer sandwich in between. Luke puts the prayer in, in chapter 11, uh, though he didn't have chapters here, but, but Luke puts the prayer there where in chapter 11, and then he comes to chapter 12, and he gives us these teachings about giving to the needy and about not putting our hope and our worth and our value in things. And he sandwiches in between that a parable. And the parable reads like this, Jesus replied, so someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, ah, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough. Now, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. What's his temptation? Climbing social classes. And you can understand the temptation. All of a sudden he goes, I don't have to worry about where my food's going to come from. I know I can survive not just one season. I know I could survive a few seasons. This is pretty great. Shouldn't Jesus go, well done, capitalist. You know, you've got enough. Sit back, relax, retire. I don't think Jesus was a communist. Let me say that too. Okay. So, um, but what does Jesus say? But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? 
Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, what I don't think Jesus is saying there is that you're not allowed to have a retirement plan. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I think what he's getting at is the same temptation that we have to look at these people and want to be like them and forget these people. Because this guy stored up all this kind of stuff, yet everyone walking around him would have been living lives where they were about to starve. And rather than helping the people that he could help, he says, oh, no thanks, I'm going to sit back. Self, it's all about me, isn't it? You know, I said normally you is in the plural, right? But when we get to this story, I, 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 I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you've done it. You've got plenty to eat. Life is good. Relax. Without a concern for the vulnerable, for the expendables, for the poor. And that's not okay. And so what does that mean for us? What does it mean? As I said, everything we have is a gift from God. And so we need to recognize our dependence on God in every area of our lives and live in gratitude. So here's the first thing I think that we need to grasp, the application here, is this gratitude comes from understanding our position as the receiver of a gift. We've received a gift. Now, we could, we could go straight to the spiritual and say, we have received the gift of salvation. All right, we'll get there. That's coming. But first, I think in this prayer, what Jesus is calling us to do is to recognize that we're also the gift of, we've been given the gift of a lot of physical things. And that grace, because we don't deserve it. I don't deserve the things that I have any more than, than somebody living in Haiti. I don't deserve it. It is pure grace that I have it. And in some ways, probably it's caused me more harm than good sometimes. But I need to recognize that the fact that I have what I have is a gift. And that gift, that grace that I've received should lead me to gratitude, to thankfulness. And what that gratitude then should do is move us to action. Gratitude then should move us to action. As we say, God, I don't deserve it, but you've given it to me. Help me to use it wisely. God, help me to not get caught up looking at all the people above me that I forget about the people who don't have as much as me. So what does that mean for you guys? Like, what do you need to do? I don't know. I don't know a single person, one of you, I don't know your salary, and I don't need to. Because you know, and you know how much you have that's expendable. You know what you have that isn't. You know what your bills are like. You know what you could cut in your life. You know all of those things if you sat down and thought about it. And you know how responsible you are with your money. And as somebody who is terribly irresponsible with money, thankfully I have a wife who's not. Like, I would be begging you all for money probably if I were by myself. You know, like, I, I, I've traditionally, at least in my past, before I was married, I, lived, I looked at my bank account and went, well, there's still a few, a few dollars in there, so I can go out to eat. Right? You know, like it was like, as long as the balance isn't in the negative, we're doing pretty good. So look, I, I understand, like, this is like a temptation for me as well. I'm not just like, you know, you terrible people out there and the way you spend your money. You know, like, understand, like, this is a struggle for all of us, I think, of wanting to do what's right with our money. 
of wanting to do what's right with the blessings that God has given us, not just money, but food, everything that we've been given, doing the right thing, being good stewards, to use the big fancy term there, of our money and the things that we have, the physical things that we have. And this will always be a struggle because we live in a world that says, like, get yours. It says, just keep moving to the top, right? And so how much is it okay? How much retirement is enough? I don't know. That's not for me to answer for you. I can't give you a figure on that. How much, you know, how much is enough? How much should I give? How much should I do? I can't answer those questions for you. These are ones you have to wrestle with. You have to pray this prayer. God, give me the food that I need and help me to understand that it's a gift and help me to let that lead to gratitude and let that gratitude then lead to action that understands that what I have is not really mine. It's a gift. So I think there is a big difference between the entitled receiver of a gift and the truly grateful. Am I right? Like, if you, like you guys have probably been there. You've given a gift to somebody who didn't really even say thank you. Maybe you've been that person and you realized it and you thought, oh my goodness. Not speaking from experience at all. Um, <clears throat> but there's a big difference. And I've found that sometimes when I have received some of the greatest gifts that I've received... It made me just want to, want to bless people, want to give to other people, to share the joy. You know, we need to move from, I suppose, from, from the Scrooge at the beginning of the story to the Scrooge at the end of the story of a Christmas right, story, right? So when we begin to see this prayer as our Father in heaven, our daily bread, and not just mine, it opens, up, it opens us up to the reality that there are others in this world in need, maybe right around us, not necessarily in another country, but also in other countries. And so we have a responsibility to provide out of our abundance for those without. So we can be an answer to this prayer for people. This is one of the cool things about the church. I think oftentimes God empowers the church to be an answer to prayer for people. And we get to do that. That's one of the things as a church, man, I, I think is a great thing that we can do. Like that, that, that offering doesn't go in my back pocket. Like that offering is used to be able to serve other people, to be able to serve our community. And yeah, you know what? It pays for the electricity and things like that, but that's not what I get excited about. I get excited about the fact that our church can be an answer to prayer for people, can be able to help people. And so what opportunities do we have? It's a question we need to ask. I think in some ways, you know, back in our Acts series, we went through chapter 2, verse 44 uh, to 45. It says they gave, they sold their stuff and they gave to each other as, as, as each one had need. And again, it wasn't like they sold everything, put it in a giant pot and distributed it evenly and equally. Okay, that's again, reading Marks into the Bible is equally as bad as you know, reading capitalism into the Bible, okay? So, so, like, what it was, was they went, oh, geez, you have a need? Well, I've got this extra field. I'm going to sell it like Barnabas. I'm going to sell it, and we can take care of those needs, right? There's that field, man. I don't, need, I don't need it building wealth for me. Like, let me help you, right? That's this model that we see in Acts of the church doing, trusting in God's provision and being the provision for others. And so instead of storing up unnecessary riches, 
we have to ask, are we using our abundance to provide for others? And so it's, that I think is the very literal question we need to be asking around this. So I said I, I would get to the spiritual, right? The spiritual side of things. And, and here's where I want to because I think it's important. Okay, it's always important to look at the text and what is Jesus actually saying here? And, and some of the early church fathers, believe it or not, actually couldn't stand the thought that Jesus would be talking about something physical and literal, right? And so they said, no way, he can't possibly be doing that. He must be talking about how he is the bread of life, right? And they just went straight to the spiritual, skipped, skipped all the physical stuff. And, and actually, I, I mean, I know people, there's lots of people that still do that now. Right? Just recently, I ran into a guy that said, as a church, we don't say anything about helping people, anything about the social gospel. That's what the liberals do. We just talk about the Bible. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand how you could separate the two, especially because like, you know, we were going through Micah, and it's like, <laughs> like, what does the Lord want from you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And, you know, and you're like, I, I don't think the Bible separates those two things at all. But they are connected. And so we can't just talk about the physical. I think we can make this jump. Jesus does call himself the bread of life. And we pray, God, give us what, sustain us spiritually, what we need. The spiritual food that we need. Because guys, we hunger spiritually, whether we feel it or not. Whether our, you know, our spiritual stomachs growl or not on a consistent basis. We are hungry and oftentimes we don't even realize it. And it's asking God, please open our hearts to see that you are the bread of life. That you are what we need. And, and that's, that's what we need to hear, guys. We need to know that. That Jesus is that bread of life. Jesus is what we need spiritually. We go often in our lives hungering and looking and, and trying to, to eat. <laughs> Again, I'm being very spiritual metaphor there. Maybe that's just confusing. Here's what I'm going to say. We go through our lives hungering for Jesus and not realizing that's what we're actually wanting. And so we try, we try and, and other, all other things. And those things won't satisfy like Jesus will. They won't satisfy like Jesus will. Jesus is the bread of life, and he calls us to take and eat, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, do that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Look to him for the spiritual food that you need, that you were longing for. All right? So we come to this time of communion, right, where we've got juice in the back and some bread it's this time as Christians that we believe that we come to Jesus spiritually hungry, and he feeds us. He has fed us through his death and his resurrection on the cross, that Jesus really died, that he is really alive, and that, that it is possible now for us to live in the kingdom of God through his son, Jesus. The king has come to make a way for us to lead us into God's kingdom. And if Jesus isn't your king... You're not experiencing the truest, realest life possible that we find in Jesus. The bread of life, Jesus, is the great giver of life. And so as we come to communion, I guess I want us to reflect on that, to reflect on the fact that Jesus is the one who gives us life. As Christians, that's what we believe, that's what we recognize. Every single Sunday, we, we come here, we recognize that Jesus is the one who sustains us, who gives us life, who gives us the spirit and empowers us to live for him, who gives us the, the physical food we need, who gives us the spiritual nourishment that we need to survive. 
So we come to communion in gratitude. I want to encourage you as you take this this morning just to live in gratitude. And man, if this week you've been, you know, or last week, whatever, you know yourself where you're at spiritually, that you've been hungering for that food. Man, let communion be a time of, of reminder, of renewal, where you come back to the giver of life. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take communion.